You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. On this episode of Labor Wave, we're discussing Amazon capitalism with Jake Ali Muhammad Wilson and Ellen Reese, the editors of the recent book, The Cost of Free Shipping, Amazon and the Global Economy. The book looks at the many facets of the corporation, including automation, surveillance, tech work, workers' struggles, algorithmic challenges, the disruption of local democracy, and much, much more. We also spend amount of time talking about the resistance to Amazon, how workers and communities are organizing to try to defeat the giant. One organization I want to place particular emphasis on for our listeners is Amazonians United. As stated on their website, Amazonians United says they are a movement of workers fighting to end management's domination in the workplace. They organize with co-workers to fight together for the dignified lives that they all deserve. They also list the following six principles, quote, We are an independent and democratic organization of workers. We run our organization and determine our strategy collectively. We grow our organization deep and wide, seeking sustained participation in our decisions and maximum involvement in our actions. We stand up to every oppression and every attempt to divide us, be it on gender, race, ethnicity, nationality, sexual identity, ability, religion, or any other reason. We build solidarity with our fellow workers across workplaces, industries, and borders, and we fight for dignity and control over our work, our lives, and our collective future. If you are employed at Amazon, I encourage you to reach out to Amazonians United. We're going to include links in our show notes to connecting with them. You can do so by going to their website at amazoniansunited.org. Also, if you don't work at Amazon but want to support this effort, there's a form on the website that you can fill out to indicate your solidarity with the movement. One potential way folks might even decide they want to support the efforts is by going and getting a job at Amazon themselves and working from the inside to help out. We're also going to put links in our show notes to various articles written about Amazonians United so that you can get as much information as possible. Laborwave Radio is an independent podcast and we're sustained through subscribers on our Patreon. So if you enjoy the show and you want to support us, please subscribe to Patreon at patreon.com backslash laborwave. There's different tiers for folks able to pitch in a few dollars, and each of those tiers come with gifts that we share with you all as tokens of our appreciation. If you're not able to contribute financially, you can also support us by following and liking our content on our various platforms like SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Also, like and follow our content and share it with your friends on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We put out at least one episode every two weeks, and we're going to continue maintaining that consistency. And we're also transcribing all of our episodes. So while we might not have a transcription to this one right away, we will be producing transcripts for this episode and all of our episodes from the past year. And the next episode you can look forward to is one that we hosted with workers from No Evil Foods about union busting at the faux progressive company. 
Check that out on more on Labor Wave. And we hope you enjoy this conversation with Jake Ali Muhammad Wilson and Ellen Reese on Amazon Capitalism. I'm really, really interested to talk about Amazon. Uh, not something I typically say, but more I'm uh, terrified talking about Amazon. But I'm with two of the editors of a recent title from Pluto Press called The Cost of Free Shipping, Amazon and the Global Economy. And before we dig in, just give you all an opportunity to introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Thanks, Alex. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, my name is Jake Ali Muhammad Wilson. I'm a professor of sociology at California State University in Long Beach here in a port city in Southern California. And so for, for a number of years, I've been studying logistics and workers and uh, really fortunate to link up with uh, Ellen Reese on this project. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Ellen Reese, and I'm professor of sociology and chair of the labor studies program out at UC Riverside. Um, and Riverside is sort of known as the inland port um, because all the goods come in through the port of LA Long Beach and then uh, get hauled out uh, to Riverside in San Bernardino. So my university is in the sort of heart of the inland port and, you know, hence my interest in in logistics and the warehousing industry. The book that you all have edited has contributions from a ton of really great authors, so many details that we could dig into. So I'll definitely telegraph to any listeners, we're not going to be able to cover everything in this book. They should definitely go check it out and get into more of the thick of it. But I guess the first place to start is just about like, what is Amazon? Or what is Amazon capitalism, as y'all describe it? So right off the first page, I find it interesting. It's hard to remember that Amazon only started in 1995, right? As like an online book retailer. And since then, it's now trillion dollar company considered more valuable than Google and Apple. Jeff Bezos has become the richest man on the planet. And some people I hear say the richest man in human history. I don't really know how you quantify that, but it seems true. So you describe this phenomenon as Amazon capitalism. Can you elaborate more on why you describe it that way and what that means? Well, we're not trying to say Amazon isn't operating within the global capitalist economy. It certainly is. But, you know, many scholars, you know, they talk about things like American capitalism, British capitalism. So forth, you know, and if we're going to talk about sort of national forms of capitalism, why not talk about forms of capitalism for gigantic major transnational corporations, you know, that have so much power and wealth and even more so than many smaller nation states. So we're trying to, you know, draw attention to the tremendous influence that Amazon has in, in the contemporary capitalist economy. And it is a certain style of capitalism, right? Um, and I think it it's a particular style that it both embodies, but it has also promoted, right? And it includes, you know, the sort of one-click instant consumerism that's part and parcel of the e-commerce industry. It's relying heavily on surveilling both workers and consumers, you know, what, what, uh, Shoshona Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. And, you know, we've seen rising inequality, right? Rising wealth inequality. As you mentioned, Be Jeff Bezos is, you know, the wealthiest man on earth, you know, and then meanwhile, uh, his entry level uh, workers are making like 15 bucks an hour. Tremendous inequality, right? That, you know, Amazon capitalism kind of embodies and has 
help to promote, um, you know, and we could go on, right? I think with tax evasion, you know, the subsidization of this corporation, you know, the hyper exploitation of workers, many of whom are workers of color who are immigrants and, and so forth. And on top of that, a lot of automation. Uh, Amazon has really been at the forefront in investing in automating labor. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, you know, we are also interested in and kind of documenting globally, you know, has been this really fast rise of e-commerce and the way that consumers purchase and consume goods within contemporary capitalism. And Amazon has really been a, a driving force behind that. Um, we, we, we call it and describe it as an agenda setting corporation, which is having a lot of ripple effects across uh, various economies around the world and various groups of workers, and is also spawning a new kind of wave of popular rebellion and worker resistance. Um, certainly 2020, with the kind of latest iteration of capitalist crisis brought on by the pandemic, has really you know, spotlighted so many of the struggles uh, that uh, everyday folks are facing. And we, we see that Amazon is an organizable site also to, um, you know, further maybe entrench some of this uh, worker resistance. Well, I think it's heartening to hear that you've considered an organizable site, because I think some of the details that we go through at the beginning of this episode might feel overwhelmingly daunting, but we will cover some of that stuff that is thick in the book, too, about the resistance, the rebellion, the work sites that are being organized. But before getting there, Ellen, you were talking about the style of capitalism that Amazon offers, because it's true, it does fit into this global economic system, but it has its own type of flavor in it. And I think that's represented pretty well in the book throughout, where people acknowledge that there's a debate about what type of company Amazon even is. Some people say it's a retailer. Jeff Bezos apparently claims it's a technology company. And then there's this conversation about it's a logistics company. So could you all talk more about that? Like, How should we even think about the type of company Amazon is? Well, that's exactly right. It's a multifaceted corporation. And I think it uses, you know, one of its branches to, to help out the other branch, you know, and, and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, it's increasingly powerful, you know, a monopoly capital too, you know, and I think it's sort of using its different parts to feed itself. Yeah, and I, I think one of the the aspects of Amazon's sheer scale and size and its enormous growth. So during 2020, we see a, a rapidly expanding uh, scale in, in the corporation's operations. You know, here in the U.S., the pandemic really you know, solidified Amazon as a major force in contemporary U.S. capitalism and certainly elsewhere. You know, one of the things that differenti differentiates Amazon from other tech corporations like Google, for example, is its vast blue-collar workforce. And so hundreds of thousands of workers around the world toil in uh, Amazon's warehouses and increasingly delivering packages for, for Amazon, largely contracted workers, non-union workers in, in for the most part, and who uh, deliver over half now of all Amazon Prime packages are by these subcontracted workers who uh, you know, face a lot of issues, including low wages and, and lack of benefits here in the U.S. And, and a number of things. An important aspect of this is, is the way in which it is a gigantic and very influential retail platform. 
an electronic platform that increasingly more and more companies have to use. And Amazon charges for that, right? And so they charge uh, the third-party vendors that, that use their platform. Um, and then, uh, you know, they, they become increasingly a logistics company, right? As, as I think Jake's uh, chapter in the book really documents. And so it's sort of creating this retail platform that then sort of feeds its logistics uh, operations, right? And as Jake says, it's increasingly relying on very exploited workforce that's contingent, often subcontracted, especially in the delivery sector. So it is a very uh, multifaceted corporation that is sort of using its resources in, in a way to benefit itself, right? And, and increasingly, you know, other companies sort of have to rely on Amazon to do all sorts of businesses, you know, not just the retail platform, but also for data storage as well. Well, maybe we should focus in a little bit more on each of these aspects. So I'm interested to hear more about like, how does Amazon's retail platform operate? Like, what are its functions? How does it really work? Like you're saying, it's very much a um, clickable service, right? I think Amazon definitely is reading my mind a lot of times and suckering me into buying things I don't want, but I kind of do. So how does it tap into my desire like this? Like, what is Amazon doing? How does this platform work? Sure. This is, you know, this is, um, you know, surveillance capitalism at its best, just like Google perfects in, in our search uh, histories. Uh, Amazon tracks all of its consumers' desires, Tra- you know, history, purchasing history uh, within its algorithm. And when, you, when you're on the platform itself and say you search for something and you see like the top five products come up, you know, none of that is objective. Usually those are those choices, whether it's Amazon's choice or some of the third-party sellers that they're promoting, they're getting a bigger cut of that purchase, Amazon that is. And so this is uh, immensely problematic on a number of levels, not only from kind of this monopolistic aspect where Amazon is actually competing with, it, with its own third-party sellers um, and profiting off of their sales, but it's immensely um, invasive when it comes to individual consumers' basic rights and protections. There's very little. Um, Amazon has full access to all of these products. And I think some of uh, the investigative reporting that, that we detail in the book talks about the competition over the buy box and the way in which Amazon tends to put its, its own products in that buy box, you know, even though maybe they're a little more expensive or they're not as good as some of the other items, right, that they're competing with, right? So it supposedly uses some sort of neutral algorithm to decide who, who's in the buy box, but it tends to favor companies that use its own logistics company, right? <laughs> if, if they use Amazon's logistics company, they're sort of prioritized and, and so forth, right? So it does it in a, in a way that very much sort of feeds its own power and wealth. Well, on the other side of this too, with the platform is like the data and storage aspect of it. So I, I didn't know anything about this until reading y'all's book about Amazon Web Services and just how dominant that is and how integral that is to the company. So could you ex- uh, can you just elaborate more on how this is functioning and how this is benefiting Amazon, as well as maybe detailing some of those ways that it, it helps facilitate its surveillance over consumers as well as sharing that information with other buyers? Well, Amazon Web Services is sort of the profit center for, for Amazon. Um, you know, and so I think 
it's very critical sort of high tech employees, right? And in thinking about the vulnerabilities of the corporation, I think certainly, you know, if high tech employees begin to organize as they have been, right, it very much uh, renders the corporation vulnerable. And, and of course, you know, Amazon has, as Ellen mentioned, used AWS, which is you know, been a, a huge profit generator. And it, originally, Amazon developed AWS for internal operations, right? So this was to store its own data. And, you know, Amazon has a lot of workforce data on their warehouse workers, uh, maintains one of the largest private uh, databases on warehouse labor in the world, right? Um, so much of the surveillance that Amazon promoted on its own workforce and the storage of information of workers' movements and productivity rates has then that technology that was developed internally is now uh, another source of profit, right? So uh, Amazon has engaged in a number of many of the Fortune 500 corporations pay for Amazon's web storage, cloud storage services, and also a lot of nefarious state actors. Amazon contracts with United States government, you know, in Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, which you know is a very repressive organization. The CIA has a large contract. The, this large military Jedi contract that Amazon competed for, and so even state actors are now relying on Amazon. So going back to the original argument, various police departments. And, oh, and the cops, absolutely, yeah. So ring doorbells, for example, Amazon purchase purchase, and. And, uh, you know, there's major privacy issues there uh, with hundreds of police departments have now used this data access to these cameras in neighborhoods, which has increased kind of racist policing of people of color and the kind of state corporate nexus that Amazon is also really uh, further developing. And just for the sake of additional name recognition that our listeners would know, the AWS, they're selling this service to Netflix streaming, right? Like a lot of the streaming services that we interact with and that we're paying for, this is housed through Amazon. Amazon, I guess, is getting in on that game even more outwardly too. So it just keeps going endlessly. But let's think about a different aspect of Amazon uh, that you've already mentioned too. And that's what is described in the book is its capital intensive features with warehouses and sorting centers. So can you talk a little bit more about that and how that's enabled Amazon to rise as like the second largest employer in the globe today. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Amazon's become a household name. You know, many of us uh, have purchased goods through through Amazon, especially during this pandemic, right? And, you know, all those goods are coming out of warehouses, right? Uh, they And those warehouses, you know, they they not just sort of store goods, but they they often um, sometimes even do sort of final assembly of goods and and so so on before they ship to the customer. Um, it's a way of bypassing the sort of brick and mortar stores. And uh, yeah, these these warehouse workers um, in the United States, you know, disproportionately they're black, they're Latino. Uh, they're, these are workers of color. Uh, many of them are immigrant. And they're very much heavily exploited. Um, you know, as we mentioned, the entry level wage for warehouse workers um, is 15 bucks an hour. And temporarily, they got a $2 an hour boost as hazard pay at the beginning of the pandemic. But Amazon quickly took that away. And, you know, they, they are under a lot of pressure to work fast, to get the, the goods out on time, all, to make sure the goods are delivered on time. 
they're under surveillance, um, both in terms of making rate, there are certain rates at which they need to work, and then they are monitored in terms of their time off task. So there's sort of continuous monitoring of these workers uh, and putting heavy pressure on them to, to work constantly, work quickly. And this creates a, a very dangerous uh, working environment. And Amazon has a very high injury rate, even higher than the industry average. And this is an industry that's known to be dangerous, right? So yeah, their injury rates are quite high. And so there, even before the pandemic, there was you know, health and safety concerns that workers had. And, and they've even grown with the pandemic, right? Because uh, you know, now you've got you know, large numbers of people working in these warehouses, working at very high paces, um, especially during peak season. So there's been a lot of health and safety con- concerns as, as uh, workers have gotten sick and gotten COVID. Right. And, and part of what's kind of the backstory to the rise of Amazon is the increasing significance and importance of logistics in contemporary capitalism. So we have the movement of goods uh, around the world uh, from production to consumption, all the workers that move the goods um, from, you know, whether it's on ships, on trucks, on rails, to the warehouses, or to your home by a parcel delivery driver, all those are logistics workers. And what, you know, we've seen in a, is kind of as a qualitative difference in, let's say that the Walmart era of logistics compared to the Amazon era has been an increase in speed, right? So this increase in speed has really um, been a phenomenon that has come with an increase in digital surveillance and a new group of vulnerable workers as well. It's not just uh, warehouse workers or a number of other logistics workers. It's you know these delivery drivers who uh, in the United States are increasingly non-union. These are historically unionized sectors, largely. Uh, there's Teamsters or United States Postal, um, but all over the world, uh, an, a larger number of contracted delivery workers, whether it's in the UK, France, swaths of vulnerable workers who don't have basic protections is another way in which Amazon's expanded this uh, logistics infrastructure. And initially, Amazon hired a lot of the warehouse workers as temporary agency employees, but increasingly it's turned to using um, the seasonal worker category. So it, it employs them as sort of provisional uh, workers under, you know, as seasonal workers that are hired just for a, a particular period of time. And that's another way in which the, the workforce is sort of is very vulnerable, very contingent, right? Because they don't know if they can continue working or not. They're sort of competing with each other to get become a more permanent worker and so forth. That makes me want to know more about the logistics side of the operation too. I remember writing down, because I just thought this was astounding, that Amazon currently owns 20,000 Mercedes-Benz vans to help expand its logistics operation for the the last mile servicing that it's trying to do. So it's got a huge warehouse sector. It's got a huge technology side of it and retail platform. And then within all of that, it seems like the logistics is really that kind of backbone. So can you talk more about its logistical operations? For the listeners that aren't familiar with uh, a lot of logistics speak, the last mile um, or the final mile 
represents the the last kind of stage in moving the goods to toward the consumer. So previously, as Ellen had mentioned earlier, the goods the the end point of the supply chain would be like a big box retail store. Okay, so whether it's Walmart or Sears and Roebuck or Target or one of these big box retailers, a brick and mortar store, right? And consumers will go to a mall and purchase their goods. Um, well, with you know the uh, product to doorstep consumerism and with kind of the same day or next day shipping uh, that Amazon has really promoted has reshuffled uh, the global supply chain. So now uh, the endpoint of consumption is a consumer's home. So that has created a ripple effect within kind of the global supply chain of consumerism and has created enormous pressure on all groups of workers across the supply chain to move faster, quicker. Um, and so the delivery drivers who, like here in Los Angeles, most of the delivery drivers are called uh, delivery service providers. And they don't work for Amazon, although they're wearing an Amazon uniform and drive an Amazon branded uh, van, their employer is a small trucking company that Amazon hired their company. And they, they limit the number of vans per company to avoid unionization and any leverage a, a small company could have, potential leverage over Amazon. There's also another group of drivers, and these are very much like gig drivers, similar to Uber. And they're called Amazon Flex drivers, and they deliver packages out of their own vehicles. And, and sometimes you may see a, a U-Haul van that's rented for the day. That's a Flex driver who is paid not per hour, but per basically shift. You know, they'll have a three-hour window to deliver X amount of packages, and they get paid a flat rate, and they have they're private owner operators, and they don't um, have any in the U.S. any protections related to overtime or minimum wages and things like that. And so, this vast last mile uh, delivery is something that Amazon has really expanded. And so now they're responsible for delivering over half of all packages using these contracted drivers, Prime packages now each year. And so every year they're getting more of that share. Out of curiosity, the latest. Prop 22 in California, how much is that really uh, negatively impacting these like subcontracted driving workers at Amazon? I'm assuming it just solidifies Amazon's position that they're not actually their workers. Absolutely. I mean, I think Prop 22 is a, a, a huge blow for workers uh, in this industry and in independent, so-called independent contractors, right? You know, because there was a huge struggle to, you know, to reclassify the workers and recognize that they're working for companies and are employees, you know, and should be treated as such and have the same labor rights as other workers. But, you know, with Prop 22, right, you've seen kind of a reversal of that new policy that was very hard won. So, yeah, I think it renders a lot of workers who are vulnerable. You know, they aren't been covered under a lot of different labor laws. Yeah. And, and increase. so, you know, for uh, the folks listening who, who aren't from California, not familiar with Prop 22, this is essentially Uber, Lyft, and, and these gig corporations uh, essentially rewrote state law. And it was, it was very misunderstood. You know, they pumped $100 million in advertising to uh, make it appear as if everyday people are being harmed by worker protections. And so, Certainly, Amazon will benefit from that. Uh, you know, with an increasingly uh, precarious workforce, uh, when workers don't have power to organize um, and they are misclassified, that ultimately serves capital. 
Well, and this is the other thing about Amazon that I wanted to hear more of y'all's thoughts on is what I find really interesting is to learn that Amazon's global dominance is, seems to be most concentrated in the United States. Now, it's obviously has dominance in Europe and other places too, but as you mentioned, it struggles to gain supremacy in China and Japan and Southeast Asia. It has more competition there. But in the US, it's pretty much everybody else is down for the count when it comes to Amazon. What is it about the United States that enables Amazon to reign supreme and like dominate and monopolize the market? Well, I, I mean, I think it has to do with our, our weak labor laws, you know, that we have in our country, the sort of huge influence that neoliberalism has had in the United States, you know, in comparison to to other countries. Um, I think that, you know, it definitely has facilitated the rise of Amazon and, you know, and, and state governments and here I'm talking not just state, but city governments, right, uh, are often helping out, right? We saw this with the sort of race for, for HQ2, like which city is going to get the big contract, which city is going to get Amazon HQ2 invested in their city and they're competing over it and offering, you know, millions of dollars of different subsidies, right? And, and you know, all sorts of offers to, you know, not pay attention so much with the environmental regulations or the care about what is the quality of the work coming into the community, you know, like not really regulating, you know, or, or forcing Amazon to, to raise its standards, right? Um, Instead, you know, they've been just saying, hey, come on and we'll give you lots of tax subsidies and, and so forth. With the HQ2 thing, what, what was also just disturbing, where you had all these cities competing, right? And turning, willfully turning over tons of information um, and data on the residents, on the consumer habits, on the infrastructure, on the, you know, economic aspects of industry. Um, and Amazon kept all that data. All that data is now Amazon. That was part of the deal. And so cities all over uh, the United States are, are even further uh, surveilled. And I think Amazon will go where they can make the most and have the least resistance. And um, one of the things about these, lo these logistics clusters that Ellen had mentioned is they tend to go where there's a large precariously unemployed or vulnerable uh, community with high rates of unemployment just outside of oftentimes urban centers and where you know workers are, are vulnerable. And um, this is something that uh, we're gonna increasingly uh, expect to see more of in uh, this expansion as Amazon is certainly will become the world's largest uh, corporation in terms of employees. They will surpass uh, Walmart in probably the next few years. You're listening to LaborWave Radio and we're talking about Amazon capitalism with Jake Ali Mohammed Wilson and Ellen Reese, editors of the recent Pluto Press title, The Cost of Free Shipping, Amazon in the Global Economy. We are an independent podcast sustained by subscribers on our Patreon. So if you enjoy our content, we ask that you please help us out and subscribe at patreon.com backslash laborwave. We also like to thank In the Red Records for authorizing use of their artist musical content that you're hearing in the beginning, middle, and outro of these episodes. Back with more after this musical break. Look, 
Well, bringing up the second headquarters, HQ2, reminds me of the resistance to Amazon. This is the conversation that I think is really important for our listeners to know, because in your book, you have a lot of thick description of how it operates, the analysis of Amazon in the global economy. But there's also a considerable amount of attention to the ways that Amazon is vulnerable. I believe the chapter or the essay written by Kim Moody suggests that the giant is vulnerable. So what are the ways that Amazon is vulnerable? Maybe we could talk about the ways that its public image makes it vulnerable to community pressure like we saw with the protests that happened around its second headquarters. That's right. I mean, I think the race to HQ sort of blew up, right? (laughs) Especially in in, uh, Long Island, right? And yeah, there's a whole sort of chapter dedicated to that, looking at the fight in New York around this, uh, you know, where the communities and and workers are coming together and, and saying that if, you know, we're getting a headquarters, you know, we want we want to make sure that we have quality jobs that, you know, that our communities aren't completely exploited either. They're dealing with huge amounts of traffic congestion that, you know, and, and so forth. And that we're also sort of challenging the, the offer of all these subsidies, right, to this corporation, this very wealthy corporation, you know, when there's many community needs that are unmet. I think, you know, New York sort of led the way, right, in, in terms of that, of saying, you know, we don't have to go along with this agenda. We also see some growing resistance, too, um, in uh, Riverside, San Bernardino area, right, this sort of inland port in Southern California, you know, where uh, workers and community activists are are coming together around the fight for good jobs and clean air and saying that Amazon, you know, if it's in our community, we it needs to provide more benefits for the community. It needs to offer good jobs to these workers, not just crappy jobs that are seasonal and paying 15 bucks an hour and so forth, right? And and so what we we see both in New York, you know, on on the East Coast and also on the West Coast is labor and community activists building coalitions around this. And and we see also other sorts of coalitions forming too, right? In Seattle, around, you know, climate change and and the fact that, you know, this major corporation with all of its deliveries, right, has a huge carbon footprint, right? It has a huge impact on the environment and air pollution and so forth. And so, you know, one of the the chapters by Spencer Cox, right, is sort of looking at high tech employees and how they are pushing back and really putting pressure on uh, the corporation to do better, to have better environmental practices, right? And, and then also, we saw coalitions coming together on the no tech for ice as well around the sort of the use of Amazon technology to surveil immigrants. And globally, especially in Western Europe, there's a lot of folks mobilizing to take on Amazon. And they've already been organizing against Amazon workers, whether it's in Germany and Poland. Um, increasingly, in, in, you know, I just was talking to somebody in South London who is uh, working on organizing delivery drivers in South London who um, are very precarious. We have a chapter uh, looking at India and how Amazon and Walmart essentially are in this corporate fight over the huge middle-class emerging consumer market in India. And um, it is very much a big corporate struggle to, to get that consumer base. And you know, just before the pandemic uh, really uh, started shutting things down, earlier in 2020, Jeff Bezos flew to India, 
to meet with uh, you know, uh, Modi and was met with thousands of protesters calling Jeff Bezos an economic terrorist and um, really folks concerned for the, the further stratification that a massive corporation could further disrupt everyday people's lives in India, which is already large, you know, hundreds of millions of folks are already precarious there, right? And so I think one of the other things that I think is important and why we wanted to focus on Amazon was because it does so many things at uh, such a large scale that that has a lot of potential to bring a coalition of folks together. And that's one of the things that we uh, was one of our goals to highlight in this book. And so whether it's environmental justice, whether it's workers' justice, immigrant rights, anti-racist activism, monopoly, we can go on and on, consumer protection. Um, Amazon is a, is a entity that embodies all of these uh, troubling aspects in contemporary capitalism. On the level of strategy, what really jumped out for me when I was reading the book was the conversation around how Amazon's compressed operations in terms of its like from the click to the logistics uh, actually makes it very vulnerable to any kind of strategic focus on the shop floor, like in the warehouses. So as it's mentioned, organizing at the point of production in Amazon would be these warehouse and sort um, sorting centers. Why would focusing on the labor side of things in those places really be potentially uh, beneficial for unions or other workers that are trying to organize Amazon? Like what makes that so vulnerable of a space for it? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think it's difficult to just up and move a whole warehouse, right? And, and these warehouses are usually uh, located in proximity to the consumers. You know, we may see Amazon trying to use uh, warehouses further and further away. But in, in fact, what we're seeing is they're creating more delivery centers closer to where the masses of consumers are, right? And so that there then are some, some physical constraints on mobility. So that if workers do disrupt, right, and, and do strike uh, in coordinated fashion, right, the corporation is vulnerable. And one of the things that, you know, and Kim Moody um, discusses this in that excellent chapter that you mentioned on the vulnerabilities of Amazon is, again, back to this issue of time. And so as consumers are more um, accustomed now to this really rapid delivery, that is another potential vulnerability that uh, labor and other uh, activists can really focus on. So Amazon has knows this and is increasingly trying to build in redundancies within the system. So if one delivery um, station is, you know, organized or on strike, they they have ways to to get around this. Um, and one of the things that they're doing, the corporation is doing, is um, increasingly purchasing commercial real estate of shopping malls could be dead and they're already dying, right? Um, and it's looking like some of these corporations that were once powerhouses like Sears will some of this land this real estate will be bought as kind of last mile delivery stations or pickup places where both Ellen and I work at universities. You know, I work at a public university and our university has a brick and mortar Amazon delivery center and pickup location. And it's right outside my office. Right. And this is something that is, again, there's a whole market there of young folks who are increasingly in debt in this country that Amazon wants customers for life. Right. So the book also talks about uh, and has a chapter actually written by uh, Amazon workers. So Amazonians United is a, is a, a worker-led grassroots 
uh, movement that has uh, been very inspiring. So there's a chapter by uh, DCH1 Amazonians United in Chicago. You know, there's Amazonians United popping up all over Los Angeles, Inland Empire, New York, all over the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and there's also increasing coordination between different uh, groups of workers, not only around the United States, but around the world, convenings of uh, folks getting together to discuss how can a struggle be transnational in scope? And I think you are going to see that sort of transnational coordination, you know, around Black Friday, Cyber Monday. I think, uh, you know, they've done coordinated strikes and walkouts and protests right around that time. And, you know, I think we'll see that again this year. The chapter on Amazonians United is definitely really inspiring. For our listeners, I think it's important to note that, uh, at least according to their own account, fighting over clean water or access to water was one of their initial ways that they started organizing. So this is just uh, the labor organizer and me wanting to say, hey, you can pick those small winnable fights first and it can launch into bigger things. But maybe we could talk a little bit more and like kind of tell the story of Amazonians United uh, for our listeners. So where did it start and how is it spreading? Like what are some of their big objectives as an organization of workers? As you said, you know, often uh, it starts at the workplace, you know, with workers trying to make small changes, you know, that will make things better. So in Chicago, right, it started around fights to get water, more water, <laughs> you know, because in these enormous warehouses, right, where people were walking up and down and, you know, sometimes miles a day. And sometimes doing that in, in high heat and coming in and out of warehouses, right? You know, and even if the warehouse itself is air conditioned, right? It, they're coming in and out, right? And very hot places and so forth. So water, right, is, became an issue that uh, Amazonians United came around and, and got some gains around. You know, I think also sometimes the issues uh, have been also around things like where do people park? Do they have to pay for parking, right? And, and so forth, right? I think it, that was one of the issues in Minnesota, for example, right? So I think, you know, workers coming together and, and organizing and, and making some gains, you know, I think it gives them a sense of empowerment and helps them to continue to, to organize and take it beyond just the workplace, right? Um, but as Jake has been saying, to organize with workers across cities, not just in the U.S., but across also nations. And I think, you know, with the pandemic, right, we've seen this sort of spread of this organization, right? You know, because I think, you know, for many workers, this was, this was a life or death situation, you know, where they're going into work and risking their lives. And, you know, things were not entirely safe, right? And and so I think that has been a, a huge issue as well, is just the health and safety practices within the corporation and, and pushing the company to do better, to give workers paid leave, right? If they come down uh, with the illness or they've been exposed to it, uh, to give them paid leave, right? They And that was something they fought for and won. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, globally, when you, when you look at the different national contexts, so there, there happened to be in 2020 more kind of worker strikes and, and kind of uh, wildcat actions in the United States and say, for example, than compared to Canada, right? But of course, the, the, there's a lot of structural reasons why that was the case. It's not that workers are inherently 
more militant in the U.S. It's, you know, they're less protected, they're more vulnerable, and there was less COVID support from the government. There's lots of things, right? And there's a weaker labor movement. And I think in, you know, Europe is, is really um, has been leading this kind of transnational um, or workers in Europe, this transnational coalition building. And uh, folks from the United States have kind of joined that and are in touch with folks and meeting with folks. And um, I think, as, as uh, Ellen mentioned, this, this upcoming Black Friday is in Cyber Monday. Uh, we're we're going to see probably the most actions we've there, there's been documented so far in 2020. Um, and so this has been a real tipping point with the pandemic and really politicizing workers, right? Basic health conditions. And there's also hundreds of thousands of new workers just in 2020 that work for Amazon because of, you know, the pandemic. Amazon went on a huge hiring spree. And I think, it, you know, in Europe, workers have been unionizing. They've been organizing and forming unions successfully, you know, which I think, you know, illustrates that, you know, it is possible. <laughs> it is possible to, to have uh, Amazon recognize unions, right? In fact, they do in, in other countries, right? And, you know, it's certainly uh, struggles, you know, and I think some of those struggles are documented in the book for unionized workers, right? You know, because just having a union, right, doesn't always do it, right? You have to strike and, you know, have contracts and make sure they're enforced and, you know, and, and so on, right? So just forming a union, you know, isn't the end, end point, right? But I think, you know, so we see this resistance, right, happening, you know, through unions, through worker centers, through Amazonians United, you know, sort of more grassroots sort of rank and file kinds of organizations, uh, different kinds of worker organizations, and, and they're collaborating. Well, this has been a really great conversation. I wanted to bring us to a conclusion and just ask for both of y'all's kind of final thoughts on the conversation. You know, there's so much to be said about Amazon and ways to fight against it. Are there things that you want to just kind of end on, let our listeners know about these Black Friday protests are definitely something that sound like need to be on our radar? Leave it up to y'all. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I would encourage the listeners to, you know, check out Amazonians United, check out the Athena website in the United States and in other countries. Uh, to check out, you know, the unions that represent Amazon workers, you know, to, to see what's happening, you know, around Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and, and consider uh, ways to support the workers as they're, they're being courageous and taking action. I would also just like, you know, just encourage folks uh, to get the book. And we have a webinar uh, coming up uh, on November 20th. Anyone who goes to the webinar will get 20% off of the book. And you know, it's it's not some boring academic book. There's a lot of just really relevant chapters, and we, we just really hope folks, you know, share it, pass it around, and uh, hopefully lead to more organizing. And that was the point of this book. Uh, Alex, really appreciate you having uh, us on. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'll just say I agree. The book is definitely not just for academics. It's a great resource. I've been talking with the editors of The Cost of Free Shipping, Amazon and the Global Economy. You can get it at Pluto Press. And there's lots of resources online to help add to the uh, reading of the book. Appreciate you both, Jake and Ellen. Thanks for coming on Labor Wave. Mm-hmm.